Let's be seated for the reading and the preaching of God's Word. We're reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 and going down to verse 11. 1 Samuel, chapter 4. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons Hophni and Phinehas died. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for reading that so well. And again, thank you for your welcome. It's been lovely being here among you. I really appreciate the conversations we've had, as well as the uh, sessions from the front and uh, informal times as well. It's been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. I said in the previous session, there's something very special that God has given you in your relationships with each other over the years, the way in which you've sustained each other. It's lovely to come amongst you and to see that so clearly. Well, there's an outline coming around for you. They make excellent paper airplanes as well as compost, so, but perhaps you could save a trial until later on. All right. Some people like them. I don't mind whether you use them or not. In one sense, I'd rather you just listened and came for the ride as we enjoy God encouraging us as his people from this particular story. Uh, I'm someone who loves stories, as <coughs> Geoffrey does. We prayed already, so let me start with John Bloomfield. He was a prisoner of war for almost the whole of the Second World War. He lived just down the road for us, from us for 15 years or so before he eventually died. I got to know him quite well. And uh, he, he told me as he was growing older 
that uh, the post office was getting further and further away from his house. It was less than 50 metres, but he had a sense that it was kind of moving away from him. But what a vivid way of expressing how it feels to grow older, that a 50-metre walk uphill is slightly longer every year that goes by. He was swimming off the coast of North Africa when he was captured by the Germans. They handed him over to the Italians, who treated him and his colleagues atrociously, as he remembered for the rest of his life. He was marched all the way up Italy and then into Germany, where he was finally released by the Americans at the end of, his, at the, end of the war. And uh, for the rest of his life, he kept in, a, in an old-fashioned tobacco tin his prisoner's dog tag, and a little, ta- a little present he was given by a friend of his, a Russian prisoner, who he had to walk away from and leave to die in Italy. Now, I learned about suffering and love and loyalty and patience and human endurance and human sympathy as I listened to John telling those stories about what it was like for him to be a prisoner of war. I've got two young boys. I took them and sat them at John's feet. I said, you talk and they'll listen. And I wanted them to learn that kind of seasoned wisdom from him also. I start with him because 1 Samuel chapter 4 pictures God as a prisoner of war. We're used to a Bible picturing God as a king or a shepherd or rock. But it is a surprise to see him being carried off. What is the symbol of his power being <coughs> carried off and captive in a losing battle. Now before we dive into detail, remember how we got here. I began by suggesting that the praying and weeping Hannah had her own issues in her own family life and the infertility that she and her husband were experiencing, but that she's deliberately put there by our storyteller to picture the the situation, the spiritual situation facing the people of God in her era. She had an honourable past and a hopeless future. It feels to us, in a sense, that whatever past we may have, our future is more under threat than it has been in earlier generations. But Hannah reminds us that's not so. It's always ever been the case that we only have a future by gift, by grace. We're infertile as the people of God unless God gives us uh, the privilege of seeing people come to new birth. So I suggest we could put our situation alongside hers. Then I try to persuade you that listening to Hannah, humming Hannah on the way to a deanery synod meeting or something else more challenging than that, steadies us and encourages us as we wait for God to send his king and as we look for God to tip the scales of his justice, sometimes inexorably, sometimes slowly, sometimes, as we'll see today, decisively in a day, the, uh, the death of Eli and his two sons. We have to wait for God to tip the scales in his own time. Today I want to encourage us as we head back to the different places in which we're serving him to know that he doesn't really need us at all in order to establish his glory. And this story makes that quite clear. He's perfectly capable of winning away matches without the team on the pitch, all by himself. He does that. And that's very kind of liberating and encouraging to us, it seems to me anyway, I've found it encouraging over the years. So in terms of context, chapters 4 to 6 are kind of, we're on the way to David, we've been on the way to David ever since the end of the book of Judges, and we're seeing here why a king is needed, because of the power of God's enemies and the weakness of God's people and their leadership, but also at the same time we're going to see why a king is completely unnecessary, and if those things sound as if they're in tension with each other, they are, and that's part of the point and joy of the story. So we'll look in chapter uh, 2 of verse 5 for a moment and just think about the scene there. 
chapter 2, uh, uh, sorry, verse 2 of chapter 5. The ark, a symbol of God's rule over his people, a sign of his presence among them, is very much in the wrong place. As the chapter begins, the ark of the God of Israel, the, the footstool of his throne, is in the temple of Dagon, the God of the Philistines. So how did the ark get there? And how and why did the ark stay there? And what are we to learn, if you like, from this particular story? You go home and tell your congregation if they ask you what you were doing. You know, in the final session, we spent half an hour together thinking about seven months in the life of a wooden box from about uh, 3,000 years ago. Or try telling a friend who's not a Christian that this is a really important thing where we learn about God. They will think that you're weird for certain. If you like, this kind of, there's a three-part drama gives structure to what we're going to see in terms of his power and his people and his enemies. The story's going to show us God revealing his power and weakness, humbling his people as he deals with his enemies all by himself. So let me run you through the shape of the story, step away from it, and then uh, earth it if we can. So you see the outline, chapter 4, unexpected defeat. We're going to have two defeats and two deaths. Let's get going on the first of these defeats. Verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. I'm a visual thinker. It helps me to imagine the TV news, if you like, as the cameras go to war these days. And off they go with their packs on. Off they go, heading off. They say goodbye to family and loved ones. And in verse 2, a very nasty shock for the folks back home. It's not supposed to happen this way. Israel is defeated, and they take 4,000 casualties. Verse 3, scene changes. Again, you know how this works. Imagine it again on a newsreel. How, if you were a news editor, would you show the fact that uh, this was a loss? Lines of depressed soldiers trudging home, uh, some abandoned weapons, some limping, very easily filmed from a drone, slightly uncomfortable to get too near. And then we're in the tent with the commanding officer. And we're at his debriefing session after the battle. They're arguing about the reasons for the defeat. And you see the question... And it's a good question, isn't it? Look at it there. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? And I love just to pause for a while. We haven't got time this morning to say, well, what are the available answers? What could the answer to that question be? If you ask around the room and imagine the general asking the people who are gathered, what explanation? The troops weren't fit enough. We hadn't fed them enough. We hadn't trained enough. What, what, what's going on? Why did we lose? Is a very fair question. Sometimes that we ask ourselves, don't we? Why didn't that go so well? And they decide that God himself has not been into battle with them. So round two, they'll take the ark, reminder of his rule. So they send a courier off to Shiloh to fetch the ark. And do you see the note there? Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas were there. An ominous little note for anyone who's read the first three chapters. Verse 5, the ark arrives and they're very excited. We cut to a camera behind the enemy lines this time to see the reaction of the Philistines to Israel's secret weapon. And we, we know that in today's context, if there's a rocket attack in Israel, the news reports from Palestinian territory where it was launched, and then it cuts to a city in Israel where it lands, and they interview both sides of the story. And again, that's going on here, isn't it? What's all this shouting about in the Hebrew camp? Just a reminder, it wasn't only the First World War where the combatants were within earshot of each other before the battles began. And the answer's really scary. Again, I thought you read this really well. uh, Verse 7, a God has come into the camp. We're in trouble. Nothing has ever happened like this before. 
And it's almost as if in all the front rooms in, in Israel watching this on the TV news, the cameraman is indulging himself in showing the terror in the enemy camp. And he lingers a bit longer so we can enjoy these Philistines squirming with fear at the prospect of certain defeat. Verse 8, woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? They are the gods that struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues. Very interesting testimony there, isn't it? That seems to me the Philistines are a bit like our test cricket team. They're expecting to lose. So you can kind of hear them psyching each other up. One day's different test, no chance. Uh, verse 9, be strong, Philistines, they say. Be men. Interesting what they mean by that, isn't it? Or you'll be subject to the Hebrews. Be men and fight. They're going to lose, but they'll go down with a decent fight. So off they go. Now look, who, look how the two sides go into battle. Israel goes into battle with the ark expecting to win. And the Philistines go into battle against the ark, expecting to lose. And the unthinkable happens. The Philistines win. The people of God are defeated. Casualties much worse than before. And instead of dying on the battlefield, soldiers break and run. That's not good. Israel routed, sons of Eli killed, ark of God captured. And immediately the scene changes. The camera, camera work, as you cut from scene to scene, is very striking. And we leave the battlefield behind. We've seen what happened there. And we go back to Shiloh, and we're going to see what happened when they heard the news. So we're going to move from two defeats to two deaths. You see, it's beautifully structured and carefully told, and we need these things side by side. So the messenger in verse 12 ran almost a marathon. It was 18 miles back to the town. Some of you here will have run marathons. I have never run 18 miles in my life. I have no intention of ever doing so. And Eli is there waiting. But before we get to Eli, and again, if we slow down the pace of the narrative, we can see women crying. We can hear wailing as the, the news, uh, as, as sort of what's going on, travels around the town. Just think of that. All of you have seen things like uh, Saving Private Ryan. Then that telegram arrives, and people see the van, and they know what van it is, and it's going down a track to a particular house, and they know why it's there, and they know who lives there, and they know what the news means to everyone in that household. Well, this is a much smaller setting, much bigger news, far, many, far more deaths, and that's the kind of atmosphere in which the cameraman then goes in for a close-up. And this time, it's old man Eli who's centre screen. Now 98 years old and blind. And again, it's no fun losing your sight, is it? If you know anyone who's lost their sight, it's not a happy experience. And to be 98 is generally not a particularly attractive experience. And we're at the end of verse 16, and Eli asks, what, what happened, my son? He's heard the wailing from the women. His, his hearing is still okay, even as his seeing has gone. But they've forgotten to tell him. No one's told him anything. And you see how the storyteller uh, gradually, coming back from the battlefield, the news gradually gets worse and builds to a climax. Verse 17, Israel fled. That's not supposed to happen. And the army suffered heavy losses. That's worse. There's worse to come. Your two sons are dead. That's worse still. And then finally, the really bad news, the ark of God has been captured. Again, do you see how carefully the messenger from the battlefield reveals what's gone on? The death of Eli's sons doesn't seem to bother him. He's given up on them. His grief is not for them. They're already dead, in a sense, as far as he's concerned. His grief is for the ark of God. God's presence has gone. God is not going to be with them. There's such a shock to the old man. He falls off his chair and breaks his neck and dies. 
such a tragic end to a miserable day and a sad end to the life of one of God's chosen ones. And again, you'll know stories of older men who fall over, break their necks and die. I can think of someone I know to whom that happened just less than a month ago. And then again, do you see how beautifully this works? The scene changes, and from Eli falling off his chair at that terrible news, we're now in the front room of a terraced house. It's a place where Phineas lives with his wife. There are family photos by the fireplace she's expecting. And when she hears the news of the death of her husband and his brother and her father-in-law, no wonder she went into premature labour. She does. She, she, it's just a crisis for her. And straight away, her labour starts whenever it was uh, supposed to. And after hours of agony... The child is born, but she dies. And as she dies, she gives her boy a tragic name. Verse 21, Ichabod. That's a pretty, pretty unusual name in the playground, isn't it? Any era. She wants this boy's name to be a permanent reminder of the tragic day of his birth. The glory of God is gone. The ark is gone. Eli's gone. Hophni is gone. Phineas is gone. And it looks like God has in some way left them or abandoned them. Or what does it mean? How can he be with them? What was he doing? Why had he allowed this to happen? Did he no longer love them? Had they offended him so disastrously that this is the scale of his discipline against them? Is this boy's name really the end of the story? Was his mother's interpretation of what was going on really going to turn out to be correct? Verse 21 is the only comment on the events of chapter 4. See, the people of God must have been wondering, is it true that the glory of God really has departed from Israel or simply from the house of Eli? Is there any way of kind of limiting the disaster that appears to be happening? And you don't need me to run through the way the Old Testament develops as they go off into exile, their land taken over, their treasures gone, Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. It must have been full of questions repeatedly during their history about God's power and God's love and God's patience and their own sin. On that first Easter Sunday afternoon, let me quote a disappointed believer. The chief priests and our rulers crucified him, but we had hoped that, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. How could they, how could they have killed him? How, how could that have happened? And surely in ministry, most of us face those uh, uh, sets of questions ourselves. There are all kinds of setbacks in ministry. And it might be that we look around a church family that we've known well and loved and honoured over the years implodes and closes down. Or splits and splits again and splits again and then finally sold as a warehouse. Well, why, why did God allow that? And again, for much more personal reasons, it's very hard, isn't it? Something goes drastically wrong in our own lives. Suffering like a juggernaut, a bulldozer that just comes from nowhere and leaves us completely crushed. And we think, well, where's God in all this? How how could this have happened? And the encouragement here, it seems to me, is that God's people have been there before us. Chapter 4 is part of Scripture. God didn't protect his people then from unexpected setbacks, and this they didn't expect. Disappointments, and this was that. Defeat, and this is that. Twice over, unexpected disaster and sudden death. Just look at the scale of the suffering that Phineas' wife has had to endure on that particular day. And it's not the end of the story. It is part of the story, but it's not the end of the story. And there's encouragement for us in that. 
So let's go on. From an unexpected defeat to an unexpected victory. I want to take you into chapter 5. And again, I'll run through this relatively quickly. It's familiar territory. But it's helpful to see what it does for us as we allow the story to kind of soak into us and shape us and send us back out into ministry, confident that God doesn't really need us at all. And that's good. So we're now in Dagon's temple in Ashdod, about 35 miles from the scene of the battle, in from the coast, about 30 miles west of Jerusalem. For me, it's helpful to kind of locate things physically. I find that sort of helps me know where I am in the story. We could think of Dagon as the god of uh, sex and money and family, if you'd like to put it like that. And uh, the ark is now there next to the statue of Dagon, a kind of victory trophy. It's on display rather like captured military hardware in our world, planes and tanks from the other side in the aftermath of a war. And if we kind of think ourselves imaginatively in what did the first Einsteins think they were doing when they kind of put the symbol of the power of the God of Israel, a kind of footstool from his throne into Dagon's house, what did they think they were doing by that? And I guess we might conclude that they, they wanted to make it really obvious who was in charge. It was clear that Dagon was victorious in the recent uh, encounter. From their point of view, the God of Israel had abandoned his people and, if you like, surrendered to Dagon. And it may be that, uh, again, they were thinking that uh, if he had any power in him, like an old battery, as it were, by putting him into Dagon's house, they were putting any remaining sort of spiritual energy at Dagon's disposal. Something like that, I suggest, is going on here. That's what the trophy means in a way. Then look in verse 3. Next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Again, what are we to make of that? If you just picture that in your mind's eye, the ark and Dagon fallen on his face. Well, either someone's knocked him over during the night, or you might even say Dagon has recognized who is really in charge and has himself bowed down to the God of Israel. The imagery might suggest that. So what do the Philistines do? They prop him up. They stick him back on his perch, because then he needs to be clearly in charge. And then you see in verse 4, the next day the Philistines uh, got up early, and this time Dagon has lost his head and his hands. You might say that Dagon has been turned into a bygone, but you didn't hear that from me. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, he's got no head for thinking, and he's got no hands for doing anything. And he's been dethroned and decapitated. Someone has left Dagon looking like Humpty Dumpty. So do you see how the, the God of Israel has made it clear who is really in charge, even in Dagon's own front room? And just as earlier in the chapter, there were two battles between, the Isra between Israel and the Philistines. There was a minor defeat and a major slaughter. So now in the temple here, there were two confrontations between the God of Israel and the God of the Philistines. And the first one, if you like, is a pushover for the God of Israel as Dagon is pushed onto his face and made to, to give uh, obeisance to, to the God of Israel. And in the second one, the God of Israel butchers Dagon, cutting him up into little pieces. See, the Bible makes it really very clear that there is only one God and that statues are pieces of wood or lumps of rock. And it's pretty hard, isn't it, to imagine anything more absurd than an interfaith service after reading a chapter like this one. You can be absolutely sure that this is not a, 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 a piece that is read on the liturgy for interfaith services. <laughs> it's inconceivable that it will be read 
Then the God of Israel goes on a kind of victory tour of the Philistines' major cities, and he terrorizes them. And I want you to see how the language links, and it's done deliberately, it's beautifully done. If you look in verse 4, Dagon has lost what? He's lost his hands. And now look at verse 6 and see the God of Israel rolling up his sleeves and going into action. Verse 6, the hand of the God of Israel was heavy against them. Verse 7, his hand is heavy upon us. Verse 11, God's hand was very heavy upon it. Do you see that? Dagon's got no hands. God is showing that he can roll up his sleeves and use his hands wherever he chooses. Now, God's chosen weapon of mass destruction is probably the bubonic plague that rats from the city have brought in, rats from ships have brought into the city. I guess our storyteller wants us to see that these tumours are similar to the plagues in Egypt. They terrify the Philistines. Dagon turns out to be hopeless and helpless, and the cities conclude they must get rid of the ark. So look in verse 8. It's an emergency cabinet meeting. And the ruler of Ashdod says to the meeting, we've just got to get the God of Israel out of town. And the ruler of Gath is at the same table. And Gath is where Samson walked off with the gates, you remember, and later died. It's Goliath's hometown. And the ruler of Gath said, ah, we'll take him. No problem for us. The people of Ashdod are wimps. They're made of sterner stuff in Gath. And they'll take the God of Israel home and show him a thing or two. Verse 9 you see how they soon change their minds as the plague spreads among them. And they're filling up the graveyards with corpses of all ages. And the coffin makers are working overtime. They just can't get the bodies underground quick enough. Uh, where I served, there was a cemetery in the parish. And in wartime, uh, Hull was very badly bombed indeed. They were putting the bodies into the graveyard so quickly because there were so many, they didn't have time to record who went where adequately. It's that kind of scene here. So they pack the ark off to Ekron, which is the nearest to the border with Israel. The people of Ekron panic as the ark arrives. They accuse their neighbours of trying to kill them. And they don't want the ark anywhere near their backyard. I mean, if you think planning laws are strange, this is a really serious kind of not in our backyard ever. They don't mention Dagon because he is obviously powerless to do anything for them. And they know that. And that's striking, isn't it? Verse 11, the cabinet is called back from the beach again, another emergency meeting, and they agree together to send the ark back to Israel. The hand of God has been heavy against them. Do you see, earlier in the story, it was the people of Israel doing the crying at the number of their casualties. They were the ones weeping. And now it's the Philistines who are crying. They're the ones who are weeping at the number of funerals going on amongst them. And do you remember how the Egyptians were left weeping when they were under the judgment of God before the Israelites left the land? Just step back from the story for a moment and look at the movement through the chapter. At the start of the chapter, who's where? The ark is in the temple of Dagon. Dagon looks like he is victorious, unchallenged, been disastrous for God's people. By the end of the chapter, God has humiliated and decapitated Dagon in his own home and he has revealed Dagon's powerlessness to help his people in any way and everyone can see that. We need to press on with the story, chapter 6, and we're coming now to an unexpected party. Verse 1, the Philistines have had enough and the ark has been giving them a tired time for seven months but they know something interesting. They know that they've not only got to get rid of it but they've also got to send some kind of gift 
as a kind of <coughs> present or a mark of respect for the God of Israel to get him off their back. Now look at the question that they ask their spiritual consultants in verse 2. Tell us what to give to an angry God of Israel so that he'll calm down and leave us alone. Isn't that a great question? They want to know how to get right with God and how to escape from God's anger. We'd love people to ask us that question, wouldn't we? We'd love to so live that that's the question they're asking. It's still worth knowing, in a sense, the true answer to that question. The New Testament gives a very clear answer, as we know. Well, their, their spiritual leaders tell them to send five gold tumours, five gold rats, and a stack <coughs> of other gold tumours. Where do they get that recipe from? Well, who knows? Gold, because it's valuable, would honour the God of Israel. Maybe he'd accept the gold as a kind of fine for taking his ark in the first place. Five, because there are five main Philistine cities. Tumours and rats is a kind of way of saying, look, if you gave us that stuff, you have it back. The, the plagues that come from God sent back to God. But the thing I love about these sort of spiritual consultants is their grasp on spiritual reality. Look in verse 6. Why do you harden your hearts? say the consultants to the cabinet meeting, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did. When the God of Israel treated them harshly, did they not send Israel their rights out? It's the most glorious place for such a clear testimony to God's power to come from. But they're very, if you like, their pagan spiritual leaders are warning these uh, cabinet uh, ministers not to be foolish enough to think they can take on the God of Israel and have any prospect of victory. Don't be conned by the apparent victories that you won earlier to think that you can win a victory ultimately in any way that counts for anything. And yet most of our address books are full of family and friends who think that they can do better than Pharaoh did. Take on the God of Israel and win. Verse 7. Here are the instructions. Send the gifts and the ark on a new cart. That's going to be a suitable, suitable vehicle for a sacrifice. Or, by the way, use new cows as well. These are cows that have never been driven before. We might call them 2018 Reg cows. And put offerings in a box beside the ark, not in the ark itself. That will not mess with the God of Israel. He won't be upset by that. Very detailed instructions. And verse 9 is the cunning bit. Send the cart on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, then the Lord has, the Lord has brought this great disaster upon us. But if he does not, then we'll know that it was not his hand that struck us, hand of God again, and that it happened to us by chance. Do you see how they're hedging their spiritual bets? It's very striking. They've gone on about Egypt before. They've gone on about madness to take on the God who messed with Egypt like that. Now they're saying, we don't really know, we're not sure. But if we do it like this, then we will know. If the cart goes back to the border by itself, they'll know they've been in a, in a battle with the God of Israel. But if the cows just wander about, then they can all go back to doing everything as usual because there's nothing to worry about. And then again, do you see how they work with nature to make the test harder by taking cows that have never pulled a cart before? These cows are going to be learner drivers, and there won't be a driver. It'll just be fresh cows, fresh cart, and they'll have to go by themselves. And look in verse 7. The cows are going to have to leave their calves behind. No cow does that. No cow will ever leave its calf behind by choice. I, I, I kind of know cows. Some of my 
closest friend were cows when I was a child. The, uh, the, the, the first pet that they ever gave me was an Aberdeen Angus bull calf. So these particular cows have got to show greater loyalty to God their creator than to their own calves. You see, these spiritual leaders, they may seem dumb to us, but they're not dumb at all. They're setting, if you like, very long odds against the God of Israel as they set up this test to get out of this particular predicament they're in. So they hitch up their cows, they pack up their cart, the Philistines send everything to do with the God of Israel away on a cart loaded with gold, just as the Egyptians sent the Israelites away with all kinds of gold jewelry. We're meant to hear the echo, and then there's a moment of tremendous suspense. Will the cows do what cows always do, which is just wander about and chew grass and fill the atmosphere with methane, as we now know? Or, or, or will the God of Israel use these cows to, in a sense, go home, to return home? Can the God of Israel make it, if you like, back home against such extraordinary long odds? Can he help these cows to make their own way home? What kind of power does he really have? Look in verse 12. The cows go straight. They make a beeline for the border. They are lowing. They're calling out to the calves that they've left behind. I remember as a child when cows were separated from their calves, there was a whole night every six months when the cows would cry all night for the calves from which they'd been separated. That's what cows do. But these cows are under orders from their creator, the God of Israel is returning to his people in glory. He's defeated Israel's enemy. There's absolutely no doubt about it as the Philistines' rulers watch the cart until it crosses the border in a straight line. And now look in verse 13. Imagine the scene in verse 13. It's harvest. That's a time of celebration. It's hot. They've been working for some hours. The men and women have different roles on the field. And at first, all they can hear is a couple of cows complaining. Again, the soundtrack on biblical narrative is so important. So, mmm, is all they can hear. And they make a lot of noise. Mmm, but they're not happy. But they're traveling. And then they see them. There's a cart with nobody driving. But it seems to be following the road in a straight line. It crosses the border by itself. And when it gets in, then it stops. In a sense, it's rather a modest procession. One cart, two cows, one ark, some bits of gold and some Philistine government ministers. But you see that the return of the ark, the sign of God's presence and the symbol of God's rule, is a stunning triumph in the context of the story. And then God's people celebrate God's extraordinary victory by slaughtering the cows and cutting up the cart in an impromptu thank you offering. It, they arrange a barbecue, we might say. It's a bit tough on the cows, but it's right to be saying thank you to God in that way for all that he's done. And I want you to notice that God has said nothing. Since the start of chapter 5, the Philistines have, all, have had all the speaking parts. Not a word from the God of heaven. And yet he is in control of everything. He really is the sovereign Lord. He's the Lord of rats and decides where they go. He's the Lord of tumors. He's the Lord of cows. He's the Lord of cabinet meetings. He's the Lord of carts. He's the Lord of everything that the story records. Every detail that is precisely under his control. And he's the Lord who controls all the circumstances of our own lives. He's our heavenly father. 
And here's a story about rats and cows and carts and tumours and plague and first nine cities and cabinet meetings of very undesirable people and spiritual consultants who are kind of totally dodgy that reassures us that when things go wrong for us, when God seems to have nothing to say for us, say to us freshly, there is no reason to believe that he is losing his grip. There is no reason to believe that he no longer loves us. He's still in charge. He still has everything in his hand. If we put the three chapters together, it's quite a journey, isn't it? God, in a sense, leaves his people in chapter 4, allows himself to be defeated. Then unexpectedly, God finds <laughs> God's enemies find themselves being routed, and God returns to his people in triumph, leaving the enemy look like, looking like Humpty Dumpty. It reminds us unmistakably of another well-known story, doesn't it? On Friday afternoon, it appeared that God had been utterly defeated. Friends of the young man were completely devastated. It looked as though death had destroyed him in spite of all their hopes and promises. It looked as if, once again, God had had enough of his people and abandoned them. And then on the third day, as they went into that tomb, it was clear that, that God was still in charge. Death had been routed. God's people liberated, death's power defeated. And later that same day, the Son of God returned to his people in resurrection power as they went for a walk. They were afraid and they were filled with joy. So do you see how sometimes it's not sufficiently surprising to us if we as God's people, either gathered or going in today's world, experience unexpected defeat? God does that sometimes. We find ourselves in a, a place of complete weakness and no kind of intervention from God, nothing other than what he's said to us already. Disaster. And not just one, but multiple disasters all at the same time. And yet here's a God who can bring new life beyond every unexpected setback, who can do it by himself without needing to involve us. And isn't there something beautiful about where there was death and darkness the night before? In the morning we find that God has been working, even in Dagon's temple, even in the empty tomb, and even in those very dark places through which we sometimes have to travel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Hannah. Thank you for a picture of a, a past that is noble, a future that's hopeless, and a reminder that it's always like that, unless you intervene for us by grace with the gift of new birth. We thank you for the song that Hannah sings as she waits patiently for you to tip the scales. And give us grace to sing with her, to take her with us into situations where we're longing for you to tip the scales, but it's not yet your time to do so. And we thank you for the uh, butchery of Dagon in his own temple. And thank you for the powerful reminder that you are the sovereign Lord and there is no other. 
And you don't need us to establish your glory. And yet you give to us the privilege of knowing you, being known by you, and of in small ways serving you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, We stand to sing, There is a fountain filled with blood.